Well, Christmas is the season where we reach back in our collective traditions to remember the arrival of God as a baby. This God-baby life cycle marks our calendars, beginning with Christmas, obviously, and then ending with Easter. And if we compare the gospel accounts to the birth of Christ, the gospel accounts recording the birth of Christ, and we compare those same accounts to the gospel accounts in length that talk about the death of Christ, it doesn't take long to see there's chapters written on the death of Christ. Much of the gospels record the passion of the Christ, the last days of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And why not? It's a pretty uh, incredible story, a pretty incredible truth. But if you look at what Matthew records and what Luke records in the Gospels on the birth of Christ, and you realize like today we're in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through uh, 21. Four verses, short and to the point on the birth of Christ. So let's get in them together and see what God's Word is trying to say. So you guys all ready to dig in? I believe God has a message for you and your life today. Do you? Man, let's read together. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, just means engaged, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Do you pray with me? Father, your word is powerful, and it comes to our hearts today, to the hearts of many people who have uh, risked much to get here, God, have, thank you for safe travels to be here, but God, we come not because of some obligation or some ritual, but because we're hungry. We need to hear from you, and so take my words, and take our hearts, and take our ears, and let us hear what you have to say to us today. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. I love Matthew because Matthew gets right down to the story and gives us just the facts, just the facts. It doesn't mess around with any of the superfluous details or the winding stories. No, no, no. Matthew leaves that to Luke to handle. If you ever read the gospel of Luke and you open up to the Luke uh, Christmas story. It starts in Luke chapter 2. This is the Christmas story that my family would read every single Christmas before we'd open up our presents. It would say, in those days a decree went out that all the regions should be taxed from Caesar Augustus. And some of you are thinking back to the Charlie Brown Christmas movie right now <laughs> because we prefer Luke chapter 2 for our Christmas story. And it's just this serene, just, it's kind of like a day like today. It's just kind of like we want to be warm, wrapped in a warm blanket and read about the coming of Christ. The reason Matthew and Luke are a little bit different is actually because uh, when they were compiling their gospel accounts, Luke tells us very clearly, I talked to the people that knew Jesus. Do you know who was around at the time Luke was writing his gospel? Mary. 
the mother of Jesus. It was probably someone who Luke sat down with across like a cup of probably really weak coffee, but coffee nonetheless. That's a biblical drink of choice. And um, asked her, Mary, tell me all about the birth of Christ. And so she tells the whole story about how her cousin gets pregnant and she's pregnant and how fun it is to be pregnant at the same time and just like a girl to tell the story this way. And, and, and there are all these things that are happening and she's excited in her emotions. And then, um, of course, she tells us about the part where, like, I went to Bethlehem because there was this thing going on where we ought to be taxed and my deadbeat husband didn't find us a space to give birth, and so I had to give birth in, an, in, a, in, a, in a barn of all places. Can you believe it? But, but still, angels were singing, and shepherds came, and it was just joy and peace on earth. That's Mary's side of the story. Matthew would have sat down with Joseph, the dude. Matthew sat down with Joseph, and notice all the things that Matthew pulls out of the story of Jesus' birth. I was sitting in my office this week, and I was um, comparing Matthew with Luke, and it kind of reminded me of, like, um, the, the Christmas cards that we send out at Christmas time. Every family, I love these. We've got in, our, in our, one of our big picture windows, like, a string with all of the, the pictures you all are sending us, and we're, we're hanging them in our house. And this is the Jacobson, spoiler alert, Jacobson family Christmas picture. It'll be in a card. And... Um, this is kind of what it looks like. Jess Eisensee, uh, she's here, I think. She took this picture for us, did an amazing job. This is the first picture she snapped that day. I was like, you got to get it right the first time, and she did. Amazing. That's um, myself, my wife, Kristen, right here, looking gorgeous, and she is with child, the Bible would call it. Um, so this is our 2.5 kids. And um, Miles, my son, he's almost two years old, and Miles has never taken as good of a picture as he did right there. I mean, that is about as good of a smile, as good of a, like, I, I love the camera as he can give it. And Elin is always in her own little world, just excited. She's kind of talking, but, like, that's really good. Like, don't you want to know this family? Like, that's a great family, isn't it? <clears throat> isn't that a great family? Right? I mean, come on. Right? So, but I wanted you to know this because I asked Jess. I was like, Jess, could you send me what was actually happening that day with our family, the, the part that doesn't make the Christmas card. And this is what was actually happening moments before and after we took that first picture. Uh, Miles, you can't really see it, but Miles is um, he's flipping me off, and he's, he's got drool coming out of his eyes and his nose, and he's like a demonic baby. My wife literally is trying to strangle him. You see that? All right, you see she's trying it again. And Elon's just like, I believe I can fly. I'm in my own little world. And, and Jess told me not to stop smiling. So I'm actually really angry, but I'm smiling at the same time, right? Um, this is Matthew and Luke when it comes to the Christmas story. One of them is like the Hallmark approved version. And one of them is like the behind the scenes, like here's the real story. And that's what we get in Matthew. Matthew, um, it doesn't have the little, you know, embellishments that Luke preserves. Actually, Matthew, in his account, gets right to the humiliating story of Christmas. Uh, as we read and dive into this today, we see that this is the story of the humiliation, the humiliating birth of the king. If I had a title that I had to give this message, that's what I would call it. I would say this is the sermon that I preached on the humiliating birth of the king. This is the behind-the-scenes mess of a situation. This is the, the second picture where this is really what's happening. And I want to point this out, that 
Matthew talked to people and knew the story, and that Luke talked to people and knew the story, and these are their accounts. And I, I highlight that for you just to say that how dare we maybe approach the Christmas story as some fable that was made up by some disciple years ago after Jesus died. But that these are real stories of real people with real emotions. Which is why Matthew is concerned not just to report the details of the facts, but also the emotions and the issues that are underlying in this story. If you look in Luke, Luke is so concerned with Mary and the baby that Joseph is almost an afterthought. But Matthew records everything here from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph here in Matthew 1, 18 to 25 is almost seen as the victim. Matthew records that Joseph was a just man. That means a righteous guy. He was a good dude. He was a good dude. Everybody knew that this guy was a good guy. And Joseph's side of the story records that He discovered his girlfriend was pregnant. He didn't get her pregnant. Spoken like a true guy. Verse 25 in Matthew 1 is when the labor of Jesus actually occurs. The actual birth of Jesus occurs. And even in that verse, the birth of Christ seems like a secondary thought to some other marital activity. And I point this all out just to show you the human nature that exists within these stories so that we might come today to realize that Joseph knew, or Matthew knew what he was talking about because he would have sat down and asked Joseph. He would ask him questions like this, um, Joseph, what was it like raising Jesus? When did you find out that she was pregnant? Of course, this is the question that was on everybody's mind. Joseph, Are you sure you didn't sleep with her? I mean, I I, I know the whole thing from God, but are you sure? Are you sure? And under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Matthew gives us the short version of the birth of Jesus Christ, which took place in this way. And he goes on to talk about the time in Joseph's life between the conception of Jesus and the birth of Jesus. Why? Why? Because any guy who finds out that his wife is pregnant with a baby that he knows is not his, is either set up for Jerry Springer or spun into a crisis, right? So through the lens of Joseph's experience, Matthew masterfully tells us a story that we see and understand not just the facts, but the emotions of the hardship and the humiliation. The irony found in the birth of Christ is that God was working to bring himself the most glory And he does so in a way that is utterly humiliating to everyone involved. It's not just humbling, but it's humiliating. I want us to see in these four verses the humiliation of God, the humiliation of Joseph and Mary, and the humiliation of Jesus. The story of the humiliation of God begins really in the third chapter of Genesis where the beloved creation that God had just made, man and woman, they rebelled against God's rule. In essence, they committed treason against their, their, their high king, rejecting God's divine, natural, kingly authority in their lives, and they chose the path of independence. And Adam and Eve, they have kids, and their kids have kids, and they're also marked by this rebellion against God. We call it sin. Generation after generation is wicked and keeps God at an arm's length. And 
God creates a people to demonstrate that to the rest of the world, he's a great loving God, and yet this people that he creates are even in themselves hardened against God, and they keep him at a distance, and they are so riddled with sin. And this is the basic story of the Old Testament, that God created humanity to know God, yet we rebelled against him and have chosen our own blind ignorance, and we don't love him. And even though God sends his messengers our way, even though he gives us pictures of our need for him, we choose not to love him. And then the New Testament, it opens on this cue from Matthew as he says these words, and this is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Last week, Pastor Steve highlighted these two names, Jesus Christ, showing us Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves. And Christ, he's the Lord's anointed, he's the Lord's Messiah, he's the Lord's chosen one. The Lord saves through his chosen one. And even in the birth of the Lord saving through his chosen one, we see the unmistakable reality that God has acted on behalf of humanity to save us from our ignorance and our darkness. One of the louder alarms that should go off in your soul whenever someone talks about this is that you're in need of a savior. And the alarm that goes off in your soul is that if you have that thought of saying, I don't need a savior. The irony is that's exactly when you need a savior. If you're sitting here today and you reject the notion that you need a new start in life and maybe you think you have it all together, that ought to be a siren in your soul just saying, no, 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 you're blind. You're in need of Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed savior, because Christ came. Jesus Christ was born to you. Which brings me back to the statement I made just a moment ago. How is the birth of Christ seen as the humiliation of God. I want to show you this because it's simply because an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God of the universe gave up all of his alls to become one. He became bound, as it were, by our flesh. He was bound by our cultures, by our society, by our religions. He was bound by our clock. He was bound by our fallen limitations as humans. John, he starts out his gospel the same way, saying that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In theology, we call this the incarnation of God, the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation means to wrap with flesh or to embody with flesh. It means that you would take on the same ecology and biology of something that lives in a different world than you. You've never been incarnated as a fish, though maybe you've gone swimming in a lake. Why? Because you don't have gills. You can't live in the water. You can't become a fish. You try it. You know, there's that story of Ariel and the Little Mermaid where she flips that story. And yet, this is what God does. He, he, he comes and he incarnates and he becomes a part of our life systems just like us. And God in the flesh, he comes. But there's an even more specific word in theology that we use to describe this, coming down from heaven to be God in the flesh. And I want you to write it down. And maybe you've never heard this before, but maybe you have. It's called the condescension of God. Condescension. It's the, don't speak of me in that condescending way is what we say to people who think that they're talking down to them. The condescension of God is that which he comes down to our level so that he might live among us. In every religion of that day, in every religion of today, God is a rung on a ladder that we climb in order to reach him. In pagan religions, God is the apex of emotions or an idea or an ethic or a feeling. But 
Our God is not reached by man. Our God is not asking us to ascend to him. Our God descends to us. He condescends to us in our lowly estate. And so many people look at the condescension of God and similar to the way they see a natural disaster happen in this world. They say, if God was so powerful, why wouldn't he or why would he have to come down and be with us? Why couldn't he just from his rule and reign in heaven just not make it so? We see God does not because he is a God who always condescends. He's a God who is always coming down and living among his people. He's a God who is always visiting us in our distress. He's the God who walked in the cool of the day when Adam and Eve sinned and he looked out for them in their presence. We see the reality of the condescension of God all throughout Scripture. In Luke chapter 1, which Emily so well read earlier in the service, we see her saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul blesses the Lord. Psalm 103, it starts out by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Have you ever wondered how you as a sinful person can bless the holy and blameless God? It it, it happens the way that the ancients would have thought about it. They would have thought that blessings flowed from the greater to the lesser. That you could only be blessed if you had met the king, or you could only be blessed if you met someone with a greater status than you, and, and you were lower than them, and you would receive their blessing. The psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. And how is this possible if not for the condescension of God, whereby he leaves his throne in heaven and makes himself lowly to us? And as humans, we look at this and we say, no, no, I don't like that. And yet this is the humiliation of God. That he would, out of love, choose to make himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, Paul says, and humble himself. This is the humiliation of God. He has come to this world He enters our mess. He becomes bound with our limitation, and he does so in a way that is so common to all of us. He is, as you and I both were, born as helpless and dependent infants. The Almighty God, wrapped in swaddling clothes. This is the humiliation of God, which leads us to bless his name, to say, thank you, God, for coming to us in our distress. Thank you, God. We bless your name because of all the benefits that you've given to us. But Matthew's story likewise shows us the humiliation not just of God, but also the humiliation of Joseph and Mary. At Christmas time, I, I listen to that radio station that always plays Christmas music. I've been listening to it since like Thanksgiving, which is the appropriate time to listen to Christmas music. And uh, all these songs are so joyful and triumphant. And, and, and you're just, we even sang them today, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And yet, that first Christmas, I'm sure Joseph felt more like Christmas had brought hell rather than heaven. For Joseph, this was a nightmare. For starters, he was engaged to be married to Mary. And engagements in the ancient world, they were very different than today. Um, Some of this, like, thank the Lord for that. 
Uh, you were technically, in this day, married when you were engaged. In the eyes of the law, you would sign a covenantal agreement. You became husband and wife the day that you committed yourself to be married to the person. But you would not live together for a period of one year, and you would not sleep together for a period of one year. After one year, if you could be found to be faithful people who could exercise self-control and be respectable in the eyes of the community, then you could come together, live under the same roof, and you would consummate the marriage. The Song of Solomon famously shows Solomon, the bridegroom, approaching his bridal chamber as one who had just conquered the world. Men, if you had to wait a year after marrying your wife to consummate the marriage, you likewise would, never mind. This was a big deal. It was obviously a big deal to the man, but it was just as big of a deal to the society at large because they were looking for impropriety on the part of the man and the woman. How could you be faithful to one another inside of marriage if you couldn't be faithful to one another outside of marriage, before you were married? And many of us are thankful that we don't have the same one-year waiting period to consummate the marriage today. But wouldn't it do as much good in our society if we treated marital fidelity with as much honor and value as they did in the days of Jesus? Maybe just a thought. It doesn't take us much to see the humiliation of Joseph in the story then. Matthew's record of the birth of Jesus is very detailed concerning Joseph and Mary's sex life. And this is understandable since Mary's claim to her virginity is at stake here. So Matthew mentions these moments. He says, before they came together, she was found to be with child. And her husband, Joseph, being a just, righteous, honorable man. And the angel said, that which is conceived is from the Holy Spirit. And then if you skip down to verse 25, it says, And Joseph took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. What is Matthew doing here? Why all the details? Why all the information? He's not only giving us the doctrine of the virgin birth, which was prophesied about in Isaiah 7.14, but he is taking great pains to restore Joseph's reputation in society. Why? Because Joseph is caught in the worst of the catch-22s. I imagine that moment when Mary is found to be with child. Just think about that. Luke tells us that Mary had a propensity for pondering things in her heart. Um, I wonder if she had the courage to tell Joseph that she was pregnant with the Messiah or not. Matthew says that she was found. The way Matthew tells the story, either Joseph knew and then Mary was found to be with child by the rest of the society, meaning she could no longer conceal that she was pregnant. Or possibly Joseph was the one who eventually had that awkward conversation with Mary about gaining so much weight. Um, darling, I don't know how to say this, but I've started doing some new exercises around Jerusalem and thought maybe we could do them together. What do you think? Oh, you wanted to eat fried chicken tonight. I thought maybe we'd have a salad. And I wonder if at some point in this process, Mary could no longer take it. And she broke down to Joseph and confessed. Joseph, I have to tell you something, and I need you to listen before you do anything or say anything. I'm pregnant. 
<clears throat> You're what? I'm expecting a child. What is this? Mary, Mary uh, how, how is this possible? I mean, I mean, we have, have you, uh, how could this possibly be? Uh, Joseph, I asked you to wait, just let me finish. Mary, I'm shocked, I don't understand. Like, uh, who, who is it? Joseph, there's no one else. Sure, that's what you want me to believe, but I, I know how this works, Mary. What happened? How could you be so foolish? Don't you know that they could kill you? Don't, what, what have you done to me, Mary? I, who is it? I need to know. Joseph, I didn't do anything. I haven't been with anyone. I, I, I met an angel. I'm sure that's what he told you his name was. Stop it. I met an angel who told me that we were chosen by God to give birth to a baby boy who will be the savior of humanity, and we are to name him Jesus, which means the Lord saves. And there in that moment is Mary in her humiliation. This young girl who had probably, since being a little child, dreamed of that moment when she could victoriously and joyfully Look her husband who she loved in the eyes and tell him that I'm pregnant with your child. Has that moment ripped away from her? I have to tell this guy who I'm married to that I'm having a baby. And it's not his, but it's not anyone else's. I may have imagined some of the details of that conversation, but we can pretty much rest assured that Joseph left the house that night angry. Notice verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What a moment. Like, what a dilemma. This catch-22 begins right here. Up to this point, Joseph has done everything right. Matthew calls him a just man, which means a righteous man. He's done everything right, correct. He Hadn't slept with his fiancée during their engagement time. We know this because of his shock at finding Mary pregnant. You're not shocked that someone's pregnant if you haven't, if you, you're not shocked if you haven't, if, you know what I mean. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. So all of a sudden, Joseph is put in this position of having to solve the problem that's before him. If publicly he condemns Mary, then she would be shamed eternally in an awful moment of embarrassment and accusation. And the Jewish law even allowed for women in this situation to be condemned to die. Although most scholars don't think that was happening at this point in history. And yet if he stayed with Mary, everyone would think that, Joseph, this is your fault. And yet despite his noble efforts to be upright in conduct... They would think of him as someone who is less than. So he decides the right thing to do is to divorce Mary quietly. Not publicly, not shaming her, don't put her at risk, but, but I can't believe she did this. This is the only move that the word of God allows me. He's humiliated. He's utterly humiliated. No doubt feeling betrayed by Mary, feeling as the victim of the opinions of other people. In all of this, though, Joseph shows us that he's a man who is obedient to the word of God and loving towards Mary. In all of this, in all of his resolution, his solution to this problem, to divorce her quietly, Joseph is showing us that he is trying to act with uprightness and to do the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. And in all of this, he is condemning Mary of the sin 
of infidelity, which is her humiliation. The irony in the birth story here in Matthew chapter 1 is that God comes and takes a body, and if that weren't enough, he does so in such a way where he finds possibly the two most righteous people he can find who have done nothing wrong. And in the eyes of society at large, puts them in a position where they look like they're absolutely guilty. The coming of Jesus into the world did not solve all of their problems. It created many of them. Pregnant. I know this from secondhand experience three times now. Right? I think it's hard. Yet to be Mary, who did not ask for this, but accepted this as the will of the Lord for her life, this humiliation must have played its toll on her. And here, Matthew picks us up with Joseph outside the home, outside by himself, trying to figure out what to do, resolving in his heart, cementing his conviction that what I must do is divorce her. And he shows up to Joseph in a dream, the same way he showed up to Mary. Notice with me what the angel says to Joseph in verses 20 and 21. Are you with me? You're not with me? I'll back up. So there's the, are you with me? Joseph, look at what the angel says. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel calls Joseph, son of David, son of David, which is a really familiar term that the Jews would have used for the Messiah. Maybe he was doing that to remind David or remind Joseph, hey, you're from the royal lineage of David, the one where the Messiah is going to come forth, the one who's going to save his people from the sins is going to come through your line. So don't be surprised at this. This is actually happening. But maybe it's also possible that the angel is bringing back to Joseph's mind his ancestor David, who himself was no stranger to children born out of wedlock. To him who, to who wasn't a stranger to the idea of marital infidelity. And this angel encourages him to boldly take Mary as his wife. For truly the baby in her womb is not from him, but is the work of God who has made her pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And yes, name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In one moment, did you see? In one moment, Joseph knew the exact right way to go. He knew the right thing to do. It was, it was to, to, to not have sex for a year, and he was doing that. And then all of a sudden, it comes up, she's pregnant. So now what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do, the Word of God tells me that I, I'm, I'm allowed to divorce her. That's the, probably the more noble thing to do. I, I shouldn't get married to her. And so that's the right thing to do. And then all of a sudden, this moment of special revelation, this moment the angel comes and says, no, 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 the right thing to do actually looks to everybody else like the wrong thing to do. The right thing to do, Joseph, is to move forward. The right thing to do is to trust in God. The right thing to do, even as strange as this may seem, as odd as this may seem, against all common sense and the ridicule that you have to endure, is that you should marry Mary. And you should name the baby Jesus. And you watch as that baby saves you from your sins. In the Catholic Church, Mary is venerated, it's called. That means she's adored and she's held in the high esteem. But not much is made of Joseph. You notice that? 
I don't um, know why this is. He's not the one who bore God. Maybe that's a start. He's not Jesus' father. He's the stepfather of Messiah. But I don't know how many guys today would be thrilled to have their firstborn son born without his DNA, which also means that Jesus probably looked a lot like Mary, which is a bummer for the dad. Jesus was born without Joseph's help. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't his time. And yet, in obedience to God, he endures the humiliation of the world and accepts it as his assignment. What a noble thing. What a humiliating thing. Which begins us the last humiliation at the scene of Christmas morning, the humiliation of Jesus. Here is the long-awaited Messiah. Here is the king that was foretold of by God. God by Moses in Genesis 3.15 after the fall of Adam and Eve that he said the, the women will bear a child who will crush the serpent's head. Here is the one who God told Abraham in Genesis 22 that you will have the seed of you go and, and reach the world and, and out of uh, Genesis 49 we're found out that that seed is going to come through the line of Judah and here we later see through the royal lineage in 2 Samuel 7 that it's going to come through the lineage of David and here he is. That Genesis 3 promise had made its way all the way through the Old Testament and found its fulfillment today on Christmas morning. Here comes the one who, save Adam and Eve, was not conceived as every other human in history was conceived, but instead was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, given a body not by an earthly father, but would enter the world begotten by God the Father. And if ever there was a miracle so obscure and unexplainable, it's this one. It's that of the virgin birth. And yet, God's humiliation and the humiliation of Joseph and Mary all work together to show us that, yes, it's absolutely true that Jesus came into this world not as the product of marital infidelity, but as the product of miraculous intervention. And ain't it just like a miracle to cause doubt and division? We see this today Ain't it just like the enemy to take the light of the truth and to throw shade on it? And this is the humiliation of Jesus, who his whole life would grow up and have people whisper around him, you know, his mom and dad couldn't wait a year. He got pregnant early. And when it was obvious that they were pregnant, she told everybody it was God's. From the moment Jesus is born, he ushers into the fray of scandal and disowning. I wonder if one of the reasons that Jesus was born in a stable on Christmas morning and not in the inn isn't because there was no space in the inn. You, know, you get the picture kind of uh, from Luke's story that there was no place in the inn. It's kind of like you open the door to the inn and there's people sleeping on the kitchen table and on the floor and in sleeping bags and in futons and it's just packed solid. But I wonder more if one of Joseph's relatives didn't beat him back to Bethlehem the, the weekend of the census and spread word to all the people around there, hey, you know Joseph and Mary are coming. Hey, you know what happened to him, right? Hey, we don't allow that type of thing in Bethlehem. There's no room for them anywhere. Let them have the barn because they're animals. Jesus is not born to a family that is wealthy and has a hand up. He's born to the lowly, yet righteous, but the lowly. And all through his life, Jesus would be mocked by those around him. 
John records for us in John chapter 8, verse 41, one of the sarcastic taunts of the Jews who jeered Jesus, saying to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. The irony of saying that to Jesus is thick from our perspective because God is his Father, the one Father. But it's almost as if the Jews are saying to him, we know your real identity and we know you're a low life. And yet, it's to those who believe in Christ as God that he is from the Father. It is to those people that God blesses with his presence. Because of these four humiliations, the humiliation of God, the humiliation of Joseph, the humiliation of Mary, and the humiliation of Jesus, they're all a part of God's foreordained plan that he would rescue the world from its own sin. This is what the angel announced to Mary and to Joseph. This is what drove God to condescend from heaven. This is what drove Jesus to complete the work on the cross. And the ultimate humiliation of Christ would not just be simply having a sketchy family background. The ultimate humiliation of Christ would happen one day some 30 plus years later on a trash heap outside of Jerusalem. The ultimate humiliation of Christ, the Lord's chosen one, would come on a Friday evening at his coronation ceremony when hanging on a, on a cross, they would place a sign